Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919 919- Two seven five four four seven seven. Enjoy the Bible study. Chapter ten is uh, very appropriate, since uh, what we're going to eventually be looking at—not not so much tonight, but next week—and as we go through here, it focuses in on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. This chapter, the next chapter and uh, starts out first with the tabernacle here, but it's appropriate just because of the time of year we're at. Uh, I think uh, Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish New Year, what we would call the Feast of Trumpets, uh, takes place on, um, I want to say the 16th. Am I correct? Anybody know offhand? Is that correct, Dan? Could you check that real quick? September 16th, Rosh Hashanah. I think it's then, and today being uh, 31st, next uh, week is the 6th, and then the following week will be the 13th. Have you figured it out yet? September 10th. Okay, well, hey, you know, I was in the ballpark. Anyway, so it's close. So I I think I had promised a number of... um, weeks ago, months ago, to look at the feasts and um, what what you're going to hear in the next, you know, September 10th, we got 10 days roughly, Uh, you're going to probably hear a lot of people saying that this is the year of the Lord's coming on the Feast of Trumpets, September 10th, because of the tie-in there, and uh, more than likely, he's either going to come prior to September 10th or he's going to come after September 10th. Um, but I'm thinking maybe what we do next week is we look at the seven feasts of the Lord, uh, and and especially I want to look at, but we're going to look at all of them, look at why the Feast of Trumpets is not to be understood as a picture of the rapture of the church. And that is such a common teaching. If you've heard any kind of teaching on, on the feasts of the Lord, in Leviticus 23, Feast of Israel, and when you get to the uh, when you get to the Feast of Trumpets, it's invariably taught. It speaks of the rapture of the church, and I think probably every book that we have in our library on the on the feast, with the exception of one that I'm aware of, uh, every other one, which is probably eight or nine or ten different ones, would say that. It's, it speaks of the feast, uh, uh, speaks of the rapture of the church, symbolizes that. And thus, uh, you get some people saying, well, the, the rapture can't happen then unless it happens because it's got to fulfill in type. 
Jesus died on Passover. The Holy Spirit was given uh, when Jesus rose on first fruits and, and, and unleavened bread. But then you have Pentecost and the church was born. And by the way, uh, Shavuot, that holiday, has nothing to do with the church. Now, the church was born on that day, but as a picture. Anyway, all of that to say. Uh, since I would like to do this before the holiday and not the holiday, you know, because if the rapture does happen on the Feast of Trumpets, then I, you know, maybe I should do it afterward. No, no, no. We will do it next Friday night, Lord willing. I know you're, you're sitting there and saying, you know, that's playing both sides of the fence, you know. You know, if it happens then and I, we don't teach until Friday, uh, you know, I have nothing to lose because I didn't teach on it and uh, but if I do it on Friday and it hadn't happened on the Feast Trumpets, then I look like a prophet or a prophet after the fact. But anyway, um, we'll do it next week, uh, okay, and, uh, and look at it. So it'll be a little bit of a different look for you um, if you're familiar with that. If, and if you don't know what I'm talking about, come in and you'll see uh, and you'll learn. So anyway, um, 10 days. After Feast of Trumpets, Rosh Hashanah, the 20th, you have Yom Kippur. Uh, and so the Day of Atonement. And so, let me see, the 6th, the 13th, we will be meeting actually on the, maybe uh, it's either the eve or the day of Yom Kippur. And we'll be then studying um, right in the heart of this about Yom Kippur. Really, timing is very good. I had nothing to do with it, just the way it turns out. Uh, I guess I had something to do with it since I'm teaching, but it wasn't planned is what I'm saying. So anyway, Hebrews 9, 1 through 14. The first 10 verses of this chapter tells about the tabernacle of the Israelites in the wilderness. And the purpose is not to give a detailed explanation of the first tabernacle. Uh, we'll see that in the second part of verse 5 but to show how the physical tabernacle in the wilderness was a type, a picture of the spiritual tabernacle, Messiah, Jesus, verses 11 through 14. So the tabernacle, and by extension then the old covenant or the first covenant, and that's what verse 1 says, then verily the first covenant. Now normally uh, we refer to the first covenant as the old covenant or Old Testament which is erroneous. Anyway it's the, Mos the Mosaic covenant. But anyway um, the tabernacle which was given under the uh, old covenant could not provide the way for man to come to God. Whereas the perfect tabernacle, that is the Messiah, Jesus, has provided the way for man to come to God. So there's, there's a contrast here that's being brought out. Now, it's important to understand the tabernacle. <clears throat> Messiah has provided the way for man to come to God. It's important to understand the tabernacle. Uh, uh, let me see. Uh, it's important to understand the tabernacle. Um, I'm, I'm mixing up these sentences. There are only two chapters in the Bible given to the creation story. Chapters 1 and 2. Now, I realize that there are references to creation throughout the rest of the Word of God. 
But you'll you only find the creation story in chapter 1 and in chapter 2 and not even in all of chapter 2. There are 50 chapters in the Bible given to the tabernacle. That's a huge amount of material. 50 chapters. And it's not saying that creation is not important. Certainly creation is important, especially in the day that we live in where people, including so-called Christians, deny uh, God's creative act. But certainly when 50 chapters are given to a subject, it's important to understand it. Um, the reason is that the tabernacle, one of the reasons I, perhaps, is, is a portrait of Jesus Christ. It's an illustration. It's a picture. It's a type. In picture form, the, the tabernacle, we, in picture form, the tabernacle, we see Jesus. Now, we're going to consider some of the possible ways we see Jesus in the tabernacle. And the reason I put down possible and italics and uh, bold is because unquestionably, and we'll see that from the text right here, the tabernacle was meant to be a picture, a type, an illustration of Jesus. But you can pick up books on the tabernacle, and every little item in the tabernacle, they say, says something about Jesus. Well, I, I think that's stretching it a whole bunch um, when they talk about every knob and every everything. Um, certainly generally, and certainly the way we'll look at it and see it tonight, and, and, and perhaps I'm reading a little bit too much into what we're going to look at, but we've got to be very careful when we get to types uh, because sometimes we can stretch types a lot further and than what God ever intended them to be stretched. I guess we could go back to the Feast of Trumpets. That's a, as according to those uh, who would say the Feast of Trumpets is a type or a picture of the rapture, and thus the rapture can't happen in, only on the day of the Feast of Trumpets. So if it doesn't happen on September 10th of this year, we've got a whole other year to wait. And if it doesn't happen next year, we've got a whole other year to wait, and so on. Uh, and I would say that's stretching the type and misunderstanding the type and what is being taught. So it, it starts out, verse 1. Then verily the first covenant, the Mosaic covenant, had also ordinances of divine service and a worldly sanctuary. Now the Mosaic covenant was given by God. Divine service. It was instituted by God. It was prescribed by God. It was commanded by God. It was from God. But the emphasis, perhaps, that we should consider in this first verse, a worldly sanctuary. In other words, it was only here on earth. It could never ultimately bring to pass the spiritual reality that God ultimately wanted to happen for the people through this worldly, earthly tabernacle. So obviously, with the word worldly tabernacle, uh, you know, the contrast ultimately is going to be there's going to be a, a heavenly or a spiritual tabernacle, if you want to use it in that vein. Verse 2. For there was a tabernacle made, the first one, wherein was the candlestick and the table 
and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. Now, the, the, the point of this whole thing, again, is not to go through every little piece of furniture in the tabernacle. Now, you can see from the picture there, the sanctuary itself would be considered that building uh, within those uh, white walls, for lack of a better term. But you have to the right of the picture the bronze altar, which is the very first thing that uh, an individual, an Israelite, would, would come into. He, he would enter from that right, as it were, on the picture, and then come to the bronze altar. Then following the bronze altar, there was the laver, and then into the holy place. And the holy place, which is that larger of those two rooms there in that one building, uh, only the priest could go in. In that room were the three things that are mentioned. Candlestick, or the menorah, the lampstand, communicating the same thing. Uh, the, uh, and the table, that's the, 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 the incense altar, what it's talking about there. Uh, and then you have also the showbread. The showbread is a table of showbread, um, which is there as well. So the entrance into the tabernacle was through that one way. The priest could go into that first section called the holy place. Only the high priest could go into the holy of holies where the ark was. That's where the God dwelt. That's where the presence of God was. And it was on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies with a blood sacrifice for the nation of Israel. So, the entrance, there's only one way to get in. You couldn't, you, you, you couldn't, you should, you couldn't climb over the fence. Uh, you had to come in through the veil that was in the front of this. You had to ultimately uh, come in that way. Well, the, the whole picture of this, and... Uh, I should have put an aerial view as well, especially of the, uh, of the sanctuary itself, as it's called here. But the whole, the whole communication, there's only one way to come into the presence of God. And God showed it in the tabernacle, which was a picture that ultimately there's only one way to come to God. Uh, in John chapter 10, 7 through 10, Jesus said unto them again, Verily, verily, I say unto you, I am the door of the sheep. All that ever came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. By, by me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Jesus is giving a shepherd analogy. The sheep are in the pen. Uh, you would have an opening uh, in, in, around that pen. Uh, and the door of that sheepfold was actually the shepherd himself. He would lie in that doorway. And nobody would come in or go out, the sheep going out, unless he would allow it. Uh, that's the picture. The shepherd is the door. And Jesus is saying that he is the door. 
And the only way you can get through to God is through him. Well, that's the picture of the tabernacle. And if, if you would look at this, if you could kind of picture this from, a, um, from an aerial view, uh, you can, we have the side view here. But what you have, uh, you have that bronze altar and that laver are aligned uh, in a straight line with the Ark of the Covenant, as well as the altar of incense, I should add. But then on either side of that line, you have the table of showbread and the menorah, the candelabra. Well, that's the, if you would draw a straight line and a straight line that way, what kind of picture do you come up with? The cross. See, the only way to get to God is through the cross, through what Jesus did on Calvary. That's why Jesus said, John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. And I, I, in this instance, I don't think it's stretching it if you would draw a line and, and you ultimately would, you know, at least from an aerial view, uh, see the, the cross. Um, you know, one of the, when, you, when you consider Balaam, no, remember Balaam and Numbers? And Balaam was that uh, false prophet who gave true prophecies. He was, he was really an enigma. Uh, if you just read the account of Balaam from Numbers, you think this guy, you know, you know, he's, you know, he's, he's not that bad. But when you, when you get the New Testament input into Balaam, he's a false prophet. He is just selling himself out for gold. Uh, he is, he's, he's, he's a terrible guy. Uh, but one of the first prophecies that Balaam had, he had a number of different prophecies or oracles um, that he had to give. Even though he's a false prophet, God superintended that he gave true prophecies, four of them, in Numbers. I think 22, 23, and 24, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but he starts out by, uh, he's saying, I see them from the mountains, from the hilltop. In other words, he's seeing the nation of Israel and the tabernacle down below him from an aerial view, as it were, from the mountains. And uh, he's seeing the camp of Israel laid out around the tabernacle. And if, if, if that top of that, sanctuary was pulled back, uh, he would get a picture of a cross, as it were, that type of thing. Well, all I'm suggesting is that we do the same thing. If we take that aerial picture, uh, we can see the cross prefigured uh, in how this furniture is laid out, which I don't think is coincidental, um, since we know it's a picture of Jesus. So the purpose here uh, is not to give a detailed explanation of the tabernacle. Uh, he doesn't tell us anything about the outer court. He doesn't tell us anything about the brazen altar, the wash basin, the outer court being the, those posts and the linen and the entryway. He doesn't tell us anything about that. So this is not here a detailed explanation of the tabernacle. He does mention uh, in verse 2, he mentions the menorah, the candlestick, uh, the table and the showbread, the table being the altar of incense, uh, and the table of showbread, but the showbread specifically. Now, the menorah itself is described in Exodus 25, 31 through 37. And 
clearly, certainly when we see verses 11 through 14, and even uh, implied in verse 1, is this is a, it's a picture. What we have in the first tabernacle is a picture. First being worldly, second being heavenly. The first not being able to accomplish that which it intended to do, in other words, bring man to God, uh, the heavenly one being able to accomplish that. That being the case, all of these things he brings out should uh, picture Jesus, and they do. Uh, in Exodus 25, 31 through 37, we're not going to go back and read these. I put one verse, verse 31, ultimately down here. But the menorah was, uh, it was a candelabra, oil, and it was to be continuously lit. It was always, and that was the job of the priests. They were to continuously make sure there was enough oil in those candlesticks to always burn, kept lit. What it speaks of is Jesus being the light of the world. In John 8, 12, Then spoke Jesus again unto them, saying, I am the light of the world, he that follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. So the menorah is a picture of Jesus as the light of the world. And he is the light of the world. Notice one of the things said about the menorah from Exodus 25. This is verse 31. And thou shalt make a candlestick of pure gold. Of beaten work shall the candlestick be made. Hammered out, beaten. His shaft, his branches, his bowls, his knops, his flowers shall be of the same. So the menorah itself had to be a beaten gold, formed, beaten. Now, uh, is it a stretch to compare this to Jesus? Well, Jesus had to be beaten, as it were, uh, to ultimately become the light of the world, right? How would he uh, ultimately bring light to us? By being beaten. I use that in an uh, illustrative sense. He, he died for the sins of the world, resurrected, that he could bring light to us. So I think you see this picture here of Jesus being the light of the world. Now, turn, the, turn your page over. <coughs> The table and the showbread um, is described in Exodus 25, 23 through 33. And, and, and the altar of incense is down below. But the table was three feet long, uh, two and a quarter feet high, one and a half feet wide. Uh, every Sabbath morning, they would put 12 loaves of bread on the table, one loaf representing each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, the bread represented Jesus as the bread of life. In John 6, 35 and 58, it says this, Jesus said unto them, I am the bread of life. He that comes to me shall never hunger, and he that believes on me shall never thirst. I am the bread of life. If you, I will satisfy your hunger and your thirst. Uh, you will never hunger again. And then later on in John chapter 6, he said, This is that bread which comes down from heaven. Not as your fathers did eat manna 
and are dead, he that eats of this bread shall live forever. Now, he, he equates the bread here, him being the bread of life, with the, the manna from heaven. And that will be talked about in verse 4 in, in, in specifically uh, when we get into the ark itself. But the point is Jesus is the bread of life. And the showbread, ultimately the manna in the pot, all are a picture of Jesus that he can satisfy uh, our spiritual hunger. He is the only one that can do that. Then verse 3. And after the second veil, the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all. So you go into the, ho the holiest, then you go into the holiest of all, or what's usually called or referred to as the holy of holies, because it's the holiest of all. You have the holy place, then the holy of holies. And that's the picture on, on even though I, I didn't name it, that larger room is the holy place on, you, on the first page. And where the ark is, that's the holiest of all, the holy of holies. But notice what it says. After the second veil, the first veil you went through, you went into the holy place. The second veil you went through and went into the holy of holies. Only the high priest went into that. Then, then verse 4, which had the golden censer, and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold, wherein was the golden pot that had manna and Aaron's rod that budded in the table of the covenant. Now, this has caused this verse some consternation for some people. The Ark of the, uh, uh, the, uh, the, the, um, the, the golden censer, or the, uh, the incense which was on that, clearly, is in the holy place. Here, though, it, it says that within the veil, in the holiest of all, the holy of holies, had the golden censer and the Ark of the Covenant and everything that was there. Now, th this is not a mistake. <coughs> First, the golden censer. 36 inches high, 18 inches square, Exodus 31 through 10. It was outside the Holy of Holies. It was right before you come into the Holy of Holies. It was in the holy place. If you go back to page one, see the golden incense altar, what's listed there? That's outside the veil prior to going into the Holy of Holies. But here's what took place. Although the censer was actually outside the Holy of Holies, in the holy place, the high priest would take the incense inside the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur. Leviticus 12, 16, 12, and 13 says this, And he shall take a censer full of burning uh, coals of fire from off the altar before the Lord, and his hands full of sweet incense, beaten small, and bring it within the veil, and shall put the incense upon the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of the incense they cover the mercy seat that is upon the testimony that he did not, that he die not. So the golden censer was just the high priest taking coals from off the altar of incense. And with that um, shovel, as it were, that censer, bring it into the Holy of Holies. 
So the altar of incense was not there, but through what the high priest would do, those coals and that censer that carried it would ultimately be in the Holy of Holies. This is not a mistake. Uh, this is exactly what happened when the high priest did his duties. And this is setting the stage, by the way, for Yom Kippur, which will be talked about at the latter part of this chapter and in chapter 10. So it's not a mistake whatsoever. Um, the incense that burned on the altar is a picture of Jesus as our intercessor before God. The message of Christ, the message of the gospel, the message of him dying for our sins is a picture of, uh, of Jesus as a sweet savor, as a sweet smell, like that altar of incense. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 16. Now the thanks be unto God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ and makes manifest the savor of his knowledge, the, the, the smell, the, the sweet smell of his knowledge by us in every place. For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ. We are a, a, a great, a sweet aroma to God. Why? Because, you know, we're, we're actually dung. We're, uh, we're nothing. So, but, but why are we a sweet savor? Why are we a sweet smell? Well, it says right here, because of Christ. Yeah. Uh, but we, we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ because of what Christ has done in them that are saved. And in, and in them that perish, to the one we are the savior of death, savor of death, unto death. To the other, the savor of life unto life. And who is sufficient for these things? So, so ultimately, Christ is a sweet smelling of life for those who have been saved to God. But for those who have not been saved, it's the smell of death. Big difference. Never been around the uh, death of corpse after it's been around, not just immediately, but two or three or four days. How to smell? Rough. Did you say rough or? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, bad. Yes. So, yes, I understood it that way. So the altar of incense, but, the, but what was burned on that was just a, 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 a sweet smell. And the high priest would take that into the Holy of Holies. It was a picture of Christ and, and, and his offering to God and what it would be. Now, the other thing that was in there um, was the Ark of the Covenant. The golden censer and the Ark of the, old, uh, the, Ark of the Covenant overlaid round about with gold. There were three things in there. The golden pot that had manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tables of the covenant, tables of stone, Mosaic covenant, represented it. So first you had the, uh, uh, it talks about the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant, found in Exodus 25, 10 through 22, was roughly 3 foot 9 inches long and 2 foot 3 inches wide and high. So it wasn't very large, relatively speaking, at all. That was the size of the Ark of the Covenant. Inside that Ark of the Covenant, we are told uh, the golden pot that had manna, Aaron's rod that budded, 
and the tables of the covenant. Now, all of these things, again, are written expressly to tell us something about Jesus. This was the worldly sanctuary, what was in the old covenant, but it was a picture of Jesus. The manna, which we've already talked about. Now, this was commanded to keep an omer, two dry quarts, in the ark. Again, it speaks of Jesus as the bread from heaven. But another verse from John 6, verse 32. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Now this gives a direct parallel between Moses and the children of Israel and the wilderness and their complaining after God had given them all of this bread, manna. That's not the true bread. The true bread is Jesus. Man is a picture of him then. Aaron's rod that budded, Numbers 17. Now, if you have a rod, it's a dead stick, right? It's, this is not a growing uh, tree. It's a stick. It's dead. It's been cut off. If that would bud with, with, with buds and, and flowers coming out of that rod, I mean, how would you describe that? A miracle. Yeah, miraculous. Certainly. Here's, here you have life from the, from the dead. If you only have a rod, it's dead. It's a stick. It can't bring forth life uh, in and of itself. To bud, then, speaks of miraculous happenings. Life from the dead. What happened when Jesus died? Is he still in the grave? No. He rose again. He came out. He came out of the grave. Life from the dead. And we are told that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. John eleven twenty five. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believes in me, though he were dead, though he were like Aaron's rod, he shall live, he shall bud again, if you will, rise again. And so Aaron's rod that buds, I think, clearly uh, is, a per, is a picture of resurrection. Um, the, uh, life from the dead, not only the resurrection of Jesus, but by uh, extension, all of us who put our trust in Jesus, we're dead in trespasses and sin. We're separated from God. We have no hope because of our sinful condition. But Jesus paid the penalty, and because of him, we now have the hope of resurrection. We have hope of life from the dead, only because of him. That's what Aaron's rod that budded pictures. Jesus, but by extension, then, all of us who are put our trust in Jesus. Then on page three, we have the tables of the covenant. Now, that's found in Deuteronomy chapter 10, 1 through 5. Uh, and, and for example, in these passages, in Deuteronomy 10, 1 through 5, you can read it later. Uh, it says, and this is after the... How many um, tablets of stone did, did God need to make? Two. What happened to the first one? Remember, why, did, why were they broken? Yeah, it was, he didn't just slip and fall and, uh-oh, you know. You know, like I do at home with the dinnerware and there's on the floor in the kitchen and 
shatters and all that. Now, he was angry because of the sin of Israel, and he threw it down and they broke. So he went back up, and God gave him two new tables of stone, tablets. Um, and normally we see those tablets, you know, Moses carrying them, you know, and, and, and you know, they're, they're, they're huge. But understand, how big was this Ark of the Covenant? Remember the size of it? It was three foot nine by two feet, roughly a little bit uh, uh, two foot wide. It was it was not very big, two foot three inches. It is believed that the, that the the tablets themselves could fit in one one at least could fit in, in someone's palm. Think of a palm pilot. Is that is that they sell those today? Still, you know what I'm talking about. Years ago when they came out with the palm pilot, you know the first. Um, Pomp tablet, whatever you call it, probably about that size. They were not big because you had to get Aaron's rod that butted in there. Now, that being the case, how, how big at most then was Aaron's rod? Three feet. You know, you, we think, you know, you, we see people walking around today and, you know, if you, if you, if you go to Jerusalem long enough, you're going to see somebody walking around as Moses dressed in... Uh, uh, periodic costume garb, that type, thinking he's really Moses. And he's got this huge staff. You know, he's got this huge rod, they, you know, about six foot tall. You know, that, you know, that's normally what, you know, it wasn't any more than three feet. It had to fit in the Ark of the Covenant. Um, it, it's more like, you know, um, you know, anyway. <laughs> it could have been, I guess, but I doubt it. I doubt it, so. Or maybe he had a hinge and, you know, you know so. It was probably about three foot long. You know, it, it was a small rod, relatively speaking. Because um, all, all of these things, and then you had to have a pot on top of it filled with the manna, golden pot. That fit. So, you know, you, these things can't be that huge because they would never fit into this chest, as it were, uh, which is roughly, um, you know, what, what, what was the, uh, the size again? Um, three feet by two foot by two foot. You know, you, you know, it's one and a half feet wide and two, two feet, two and a quarter feet high and three feet, no, I'm looking at the wrong one. I'm looking at the table of showbread. Um, three, three foot nine inches long, two foot three inches wide and high. So roughly two foot high, two foot wide, oh, three and a half, a little over three and a half foot long. Not very long. So everything had to fit in here. So, so just keep in mind next time you see that movie with, uh, with Aaron and this rod thrown down with the serpents and, you know, they're six foot long and, you know, that type of, that wasn't like that. So, um, <clears throat> now, and, and again, I put, I put pictures here. The, and under verse four, um, which had the golden censer, the Ark of the Covenant overlaid. And, this, and I'm back on page two now, looking at the picture. That first picture, by the way, is a picture that came from the Temple Institute in Israel and the Ark of, uh, the, the, the incense altar that they have built the rebuilding of the temple. That's the incense altar that they built. And the Ark of the Covenant will look, now that's not the Ark of the Covenant that they have built. They're looking for one. 
but you know you can find different types of pictures of the Ark of the Covenant. Um, and uh, but this gives you an idea of what it was like. There are cherubim. The cherubim will be mentioned. But that third picture is just a picture of uh, the three items that would have been in the Ark of the Covenant. You had the tables of stone. You had an Aaron's rod that budded. You had the, the bowl of manna that was there. But it had to be pretty compact. So when we come to um, the tables of the covenant, this is on page three now. Deuteronomy 10, 1 through 5, tells us they were, that they, these new ones these, uh, that were God gave Moses were to be placed in the Ark of the Covenant. And the tables of the covenant, the tables of stone, communicates, again, ultimately communicates about Jesus. Jesus was made under the law. Galatians 4, 4. But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law. He, the law was incumbent upon Jesus. He had to follow the law. And ultimately, he fulfilled the law in its totality by living a perfect life. Jesus said, Think not that I am come to destroy the law of the prophets. I am not come, I am not come to destroy but to fulfill. But verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot, one tittle, the smallest things in the Hebrew language, shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. We have talked about this previously. Uh, you can go back to the Mosaic Law. There were two basic promises that came with the Mosaic Law. If you keep the commandments, you will be blessed. If you disobey, you will be cursed. Jesus had to fulfill both parts of the law, in the larger sense, both parts of the law, the blessing and the cursing. He fulfilled the blessing portion of the law. Galatians 3, and I didn't put all of this down here. Later on, we'll go on and say that Jesus fulfilled the law perfectly. I'm paraphrasing. Because the, the, the law was a standard by which if anybody kept, they could go to heaven. We looked at this, I think, a couple of weeks ago or last week, whenever it was. Jesus kept the law perfectly without sin. But then we have in Galatians 3.13, he turned around and became a curse. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. He had to be crucified. He had to be hung on a tree. Because one who is hung on a tree is cursed by God and takes the wrath of God upon him, which Jesus did. He fulfilled the blessing and the cursing parts of the law. He fulfilled the entire Mosaic Covenant. And so these tables of stone, which represent the law, speak of Jesus fulfilling the law, the blessing, and the curse that we again might have eternal life. So this whole thing pictures Jesus and what he would do. Now, verse 5 says this. 
and over it the cherubims of glory shadowing the mercy seat of which we cannot now speak particularly. So there's a picture here of the, uh, and this picture does come from the Temple Institute. They haven't built the, the Ark of the Covenant. They haven't built the mercy seat. This is their rendition. And the cherubims we know would have wings. They were angels. They were facing each other. And they were shadowing over the mercy seat. Now you can read about this if you want to later in Exodus 25, 17 through 22. But in verse 17 it says this. And thou shalt make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be the length thereof. And a cubit and a half the breadth thereof. So a cubit and this is where you get the, the, the approximate size of the Ark of the Covenant. A cubit is somewhere between uh, 18 and 22 inches. Uh, depends whether you have uh, the common cubit or a royal cubit. Royal cubit's longer. But if it's 18 inches and you have two cubits, you have 36 inches. And so 36 inches is how many feet? Three feet. Uh, but you have, then you have in half a cubit, and if a cubit is 18 inches, half a cubit is then nine, so you have three feet, nine, that's where you get the three feet, nine inches for the length. Because the, the mercy seat, I don't know if you've ever, have you ever, you know, what is the mercy seat? Basically, it's a lid, it's a cover, that's all it is, Okay. It's it's a think of um, think of your pot at home. If you have you know most pots are round, but if you have a a, a, a square or a rectangular um, pot at home and you put the lid on it, uh, it fits perfectly. It's made to fit perfectly over that pot receptacle, whatever you want to call it. That's the mercy seat. It's a lid. It's a covering. That's all it is. Um, but they translated it mercy seat. But, but the word itself, uh, in Exodus 25, 70, thou shall make a, this is the King James, shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Gives the length, two cubits and a half shall be the length, cubit and a half the breadth thereof, you know, that's 27 inches, so roughly two foot three inches and so on. But, but the word actually is kapora. Now, kapora literally means, and I just took this out of a lexicon, a lid. It's used only of the cover of the sacred ark, and it's referred to or translated as a mercy seat. So, kapora. Uh, and so, when you, when you talk of the Jewish holiday coming up, not Feast of, Trump, Feast of Trumpets, but the Day of Atonement, it's yum. Kapor, day of covering. See it? That's the mercy seat. It's the day of finding mercy. And, I, and, and probably it was called mercy seat because the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, sprinkling blood on it, had to be coming in with blood, hoping that God would show mercy to the people of Israel. But the word is literally covering, the seat of covering. Or, or it's not even seat, it's just cover. You know, it's just a lid. It's a cover. Um, 
So when you look at the picture to the right there, uh, don't you know the the, the the cherubim are overcoming it, over uh, are, are covering it, but it's just the lid. That's all. You know, kind of blot out. Yeah, I, I look for just a, a picture of the mercy seat, and I couldn't find one. They always have the uh, cherubim attached to it. They were attached to it, but it's just a lid. You think of think of the cherubim as a handle. <laughs> okay. You know, a handle to pick up the, the, the lid, the cover, the mercy seat. That's all it is, okay? Now, interestingly, in the Septuagint, now, the Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And the word that was used, the Greek word that was used for kapora or mercy seat, was helasterion. I think that's how you pronounce it. That's how it's used in the Septuagint, Hilasterion. And literally, and again, this just comes from a lexicon, it's an expiatory place or thing, something that will bring forgiveness. In other words, concretely, an atoning victim, or especially the lid of the ark in the temple, mercy seat, or propitiation. And actually, there are translations. Uh, maybe you have one. When, when you read Exodus 25, 17, and thou shalt make a propitiation of pure gold. I, I think the NIV has it that way. Uh, maybe I should have put down some of the translations. So instead of mercy seat, some English translations actually has that word translated as propitiation. Now, that word that's used in the Septuagint, which translates Exodus 25, you following 17, the mercy seat as propitiation, we find, for example, in Romans 3.25, the exact same word, whom God, speaking of Jesus, has set forth to be a propitiation, our mercy seat. Through faith in his blood to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are passed through the forbearance of God. And 1 John 2, 2, Jesus is our propitiation, our mercy seat. He is the propitiation or our mercy seat for our sins, our covering. And so the mercy seat is just a covering it's the doing away with sin, though, by the shedding of blood. Now, look at verse 6. Now, when these things were thus ordained, the priests went always into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. So when these things were ordained, they were ordained by God. The priests, they always went into the first tabernacle, accomplishing the service of God. Now, here the first tabernacle would be what? The holy place, the holy place. Look at verse 7. But into the second, the holy of holies, went the high priest alone once every year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the errors or the sins of his people. Only once a year, the high priest went into the holy of holies and offered a sacrifice, blood had to be blood, for the sins of the people, for himself and for the people. Only the high priest. 
That's Yom Kippur. That's what's coming up, although it's not practiced that way today because there's no temple. Now, Leviticus 17.11. I have verses here that you can look at. Leviticus 16 tells about Yom Kippur. But 17.11 is a principle that has never been done away with, never been abrogated. I'm going to pause. Let's, let's pray for Glenn. I think he's something wrong with him. Um, is his eyes bothered? Was that the issue? Okay. Okay, well, let's, let's stop and pray for Glenn. So, Father, thank you for Glenn, and uh, pray that this issue with his eye that would be taken care of, Lord, as he now goes to a hospital or urgent care, Lord, that uh, it would be resolved. But we commit him to you in that physical need that he has uh, and ask for you to intervene here. And thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. And those of you who are looking or watching on uh, live stream or later on, uh, Glenn attends the Bible study and he got a couple of times, he just left. He's got a issue with his eyes, so that's that's... That's why we stopped and prayed for it. So, um, Leviticus 17.11, right? At the bottom of verse, of point number se- verse number 7. For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes an atonement for the soul. This is given after the Yom Kippur chapter, the most holy of days in the calendar of Israel. Has to be a blood atonement. This principle, and it's a principle, the life of the flesh is in the blood. Remember years ago, kind of, you know, remember how they used to treat illness occasionally? They would take leeches and suck the blood out of people, doctors thinking that would heal them. That was the worst thing they could do. Then somebody, you know, I, 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 so maybe somebody who was familiar with the word of God, I, I don't remember all the details behind it, no, the life is in the blood. You don't want to take out the blood. You know, if you take it out, you've got to replace it with clean stuff. Anyway, but this is a principle. It's never been abrogated, never been done away with. For the life of the flesh is in the blood. I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for your souls. It's the blood that makes an atonement, a covering, that's the, that, that is on the mercy seat that makes an atonement for your soul. There has to be a blood atonement. This Principle has never been done away with in the scripture. You know, it, it, if you ever have an opportunity to talk to a Jewish person about how they get forgiveness of sins, especially around this time of year, today they will tell you it's through, through uh, prayer uh, and repentance. Take them back to Leviticus 17.11. Here's the principle. Never been done away with. The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make an atonement for the soul. It's the blood that makes atonement. Prayer, yes. Repentance, yes. But without the shedding of blood, which Hebrews will ultimately say, there's no remission. Where's your blood offering? Where's your blood sacrifice? And it's not enough to say, as some uh, ultra-Orthodox rabbis will say, well, if God wanted us to have a blood sacrifice, he never would have allowed the temple to be destroyed. Well, that's begging the, the, the question because the principle is still the same. 
then why did God allow the temple to be destroyed? Because you rejected the one ultimate blood sacrifice. But it's, it's an excellent way of, of, of sharing ultimately the, the gospel with Jewish people uh, and, and talking them. This principle of the blood atonement is still true today. And the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies. Then verse 8, the Holy Ghost is signifying that the way into the Holy of, Holiest of all was not yet made manifest while as the tabernacle, the first tabernacle, was yet standing. So the Holy Spirit then was, was illustrating something to us as long as the tabernacle and then the temple was still standing. Because and in, in Hebrews chapter 10, it's going to go into a lot more detail on this. What was it telling us when the first temple was still standing, tabernacle, temple, what was it communicating? Every year, what had to be done? Yeah, the, the pri, pri, every year, the high priest had to do the same thing. And in chapter 10, we'll, we'll talk about this in specifically. And by just it's still standing, it communicated there was never any final payment for our sin. It had to be destroyed, had to be taken down, because the perfect tabernacle came to pay the penalty. And that's, that's what it's saying. Uh, turn, turn your page over. Verse 9, which was a figure for the time then present. See, we are on very solid ground when we see the tabernacle, and by extension the temple, which was patterned after the tabernacle, as a picture, a type, an illustration of Jesus. We are told very clearly which was a figure, picture, illustration, type, for the time then present in which were offered both gifts and sacrifices that could not make him that did the service perfect as pertaining to the conscience. If, if, if you don't have sin forgiven, your conscience is going to drive you up a wall. The Israelite who came trying to get his sin forgiven never had his conscience truly qualmed because he never knew truly through those sacrifices that his sins were forgiven. I remember years ago, there was a Jewish gal that come to the Lord, but she, she shared her testimony. This was right after Cheryl and I were married. Remember, you were with me, I think, back at the Bible study at Bob and Liz's home. And she came up and she shared her testimony, and she was like 19, 20, 21, 22. Um, and she said, I'm a new believer. I don't remember how many weeks or months it was, she said. But couple of years ago, a year ago, whatever the time frame was, she said, I had an abortion. And my conscience wouldn't let me sleep. I was racked with guilt. She said, I walked around literally like, felt like I had a hundred pound weight on my shoulders that I could not get rid of. This, she told me, this. She, she actually used the terminology of a hundred pound weight. I said, I was so racked with guilt and weighted down with it and, and just couldn't get rid of it. 
But when I accepted Jesus as my Messiah and Savior, that 100-pound weight was removed completely, and I'm no longer feeling guilty at all. I recognize it was wrong, it was sin, it was murder, but through Jesus and his forgiveness, my conscience has been cleared because he paid the penalty for my sin, every single one of those sins, including murder, abortion. I guarantee you there are thousands, tens of thousands of women walking around guilty with that 100-pound weight on their shoulder because they've killed a child. Now, you can suppress it and you can become deadened to your sin, but conscience is very real. And it, and, and it doesn't have to be an abortion. It can be whatever that sin might be. But if your conscience is bothering you, it's because you have done something. You have sinned against God. You need to realize if you're a believer, number one, that sin is forgiven. God has sent that, 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 that sin as far as the, the east is from the west. Now, I think that's a very great illustration. If you, if you would head north, and you started walking north, ultimately you're going to hit the point as you're walking, which direction then are you going to end up going? South. And if you go south long enough, ultimately you're going to end up north. But if you start walking west, when do you start going east? Never. Because the east never meets the west. The north meets the south. But as far as the east is from the west, they never meet. They're, they're forever separated. They'll never meet. So are your sins from God when you have his forgiveness. And if just accept it. You don't, you know, and, and if there's something that you haven't confessed that you've done after you've been saved, confess it. You'll have, one of the greatest joys of being a Christian is that your conscience can be cleared. That, that it, because conscience will rack you with guilt and, and drive you up a wall. Uh, you know, the biggest cause of suicide in this country is unforgiven sin. That's all. It's because they've done something that they can't get forgiveness for. You know, I, I, I read yesterday, I think it was, or the day before, it's been of this nine-year-old boy. It was a boy. Yeah, who came out as a homosexual and was bullied by his... I didn't read the article, only read the headline. And was bullied by his classmates. And he committed suicide. There's so much wrong with that story. Number one, he's not homo... If he's homo... A nine-year-old boy is not homosexual. He's taught to be homosexual... Through his, what, through his I, don't, I didn't read the whole story. I don't know. Somehow, somebody taught him, he, you know, he, you know uh, and ultimately, you know, he's got all this guilt, the bullying didn't help, and so on. That sin 
of him thinking he was that, or I don't know if he practiced it. He's only nine years old. You know, yeah, um, led him to that. The reason we have such a high suicide epidemic is because of, the, of, of unforgiven sin. Sin comes in different forms, different varieties. And it'll, it'll drive you to suicide. That's the underlying cause for suicide. It's not bullying. It's not bad parenting. It's not a host of other things. It's sin unforgiving. That drives you to the point that you can't live anymore. That you don't think it's worth living anymore. Praise the Lord. Um, the tabernacle could never do away with that. All the offerings, all the gifts, all the sacrifices could never make the service, the, him that came to, did the service perfect. In other words, perfect doesn't mean you're going to be without sin. It means you're forgiven, you're cleansed, you're right before a holy God. As pertaining to the conscience, which stood, and obviously where's it going? Who's the only one that could do that? Jesus. Which stood only in meats and drinks and different kinds of washings and cardinal ordinances imposed on them until the time of Reformation when things would change. When would things change? When Jesus came. And that's where verse, verse 11 picks up the contrast. But Christ, being come a high priest of good things to come, by a greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, not made out of gold and silver and acacia wood and, and linen and all that other stuff, not made with hands, not human made, in other words, that is to say, not of this building. See, what we're going to see in, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 5, is that God made a body for Jesus. It was a divinely built tabernacle, if you will. Verse 12, neither by the blood of goats and calves, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place, having obtained eternal redemption for us. Neither by the blood of goats, but by his own blood he entered in once into the holy place. By his own blood. It's the word dia. Now, th th this... There's a lot of, um, or there's some, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, dispute on what is being spoken. Some, and some people on the dispute of what is being spoken of here will become very dogmatic. That if you don't believe what they believe, that you are a heretic of the first degree, and they believe that Jesus, when he died, actually by his blood, took his blood, scooped it up, I guess, off of that cross in the earth where he bled and died and took it into heaven and laid it on the mercy seat on that heavenly sanctuary. Some people believe that. And they're good men. If they want to believe that, that's fine. But don't condemn people who don't believe it. Now, there is some disagreement on the interpretation of this passage. Just some commentators, such as J. Vernon McGee. And even though I would disagree with J. Vernon, uh, J. Vernon was not one that condemned everybody who didn't agree with him. But J. Vernon McGee, McGee, McGee states that Christ went into heaven with his blood. 
Now the Greek. And most English renderings state that he entered heaven not with his own blood, but through or by his own blood. The preposition dia may be translated through, by reason of, or by virtue of. And if you would look at the different English translations, you'll see uh, many of them, most of them would say it's by virtue of, or by reason of, or through his blood. Uh, and, and in other words, that's the basis. That's the foundation in which he could go into heaven uh, for us. But anyway, it goes on. This would lead one to understand that Christ is now seated in heaven as the high priest by virtue of his sacrificial death and precious blood. On the cross, Jesus stated, it is finished, paid in full, indicating that his blood was efficacious at the moment it was shed. He didn't have to take it up into the heavenly sanctuary and put it on the mercy seat. It was efficacious the moment he died, the moment he shed his blood, it is done. It is finished. It is fulfilled. It is complete. Indicating that his blood was efficacious in the moments of shed, an interpretation that is also supported by the fact that the veil in the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Remember that? The way into God was open. Albert Barnes notes this. <coughs> Quote, as the Jewish high priest bore the blood of the animal into the Holy of Holies, and sprinkled it there as the means of expiation. So the offering which Christ has to make in heaven, or the consideration on which he pleads for the pardon of, the, of his people, is the blood which he shed on Calvary. Having made the atonement, he now pleads the merit of it as a, quote, reason, close quote, why sinners should be saved. It's not, of course, meant that he literally bore his own blood into heaven as the high priest did the blood of the bullock and the goat into the sanctuary, or that he literally sprinkled it on the mercy seat there, but that that blood, having, having been shed for sin, <coughs> is now the ground of his pleading and intercession for the pardon of sin. As the sprinkled blood of the Jewish sacrifice was the ground of the pleading of the Jewish high priest for the pardon of himself and the people. I believe that's the correct view. But there are men who are saved, preachers, who will say that Jesus had to take the blood that he shed on Calvary and take it into heaven itself and put and that's why he told Mary, don't touch me, I've got to go to heaven, and, and put it on the mercy seat there before God would accept that sacrifice. I disagree with that. And, and if somebody wants to hold that, that's fine. They're, they're still, if they're, they're, they can be brothers in the Lord. They may be brothers and their sisters in the Lord. But, but don't call me a heretic because I disagree with you. And many, 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 many people disagree with that position. And it is by the virtue of his shed blood, by what he did on Calvary, that we have entrance into heaven. That's what it's saying. Neither by the blood of coats and calves, but on the basis of his own blood, he entered in once into the holy place, he having obtained, past tense, eternal redemption for us. Then verse 13. For if the blood of bulls and of goats, the ashes of a heifer, and this is the red heifer of Numbers chapter 19, by the way, and the ashes of, an of a heifer sprinkling the unclean sanctifies the purifying of the flesh, if all these, these physical things could purify the flesh, 
How much more, verse 14, how much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, purge your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? How much greater is Jesus' blood that can literally do away with our sins and purge our conscience, just cleanse it from all the guilt that we've had. And, and, if, and, if, and if you've lived a rotten life and were saved at a later age in life, you're, you could be literally, I, I've met people before that said, God can't forgive me. I've got too many sins. I've been too wretched. And, and they're living a hard life. They're racked with guilt. So guilty, they don't even believe God can forgive them. There's, the, you know, what's that song, um, The Love of God? You know, I should know it because it was played at our wedding. But, um, you, know, is, you know, the love of God written in the sky, deeper than the oceans, all the ink of, you know. But there's no love, there's, there's no sin so great that God can't forgive through Jesus Christ. What great love. Now, one thing in closing, and I'm just going to read what Pastor Stephen J. Colt says about it. But how much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit. Now, there's two, two views on the eternal spirit. One is that the eternal spirit here is speaking of Jesus' spirit. And the other, the Holy Spirit. Here's what Stephen Cole says, and, and, and I think it's as good as anybody that I've come across. Scholars debate whether eternal spirit refers to the Holy Spirit or to Jesus' eternal divine spirit. There were no capital letters in the original Greek. We cannot be dogmatic on this. If it refers to the Holy Spirit, then it means that Jesus relied on the Holy Spirit when he went to the cross, which is certainly true. If it refers to Jesus' eternal divine nature, the emphasis would be on the fact that Jesus' sacrifice was uniquely efficacious to redeem his people because he is not only a man, but also is eternal God, Hebrews 7, 3, and 16. The point is, the difference between the Levitical offerings and Christ's self-offering was infinite rather than relative. And then I put this in bold. This infinitely efficacious sacrifice satisfied God in a way that the blood of bulls and goats never could. Through Christ's blood, we can have a clean conscience. Boy, underline, you know, it, there are, I, I think our churches are filled with, well, one reason may be because they're not saved, but they're filled with people who are guilty. Their conscience wrecked them with, with, with doubt and, and, and all the ills that go with a guilty conscience, even to the point of suicide. I, I remember when I was first saved years ago and there was somebody over at, um, Beth Yeshua in Fort Lauderdale. And uh, he played in the, as I remember, he, I think he played in their music group. And uh, I don't remember his name, but I was a new believer. 
and he committed suicide. Got in his car, left his wife, left his kids. This is Fort Lauderdale. Drove to Vegas and killed himself. I don't remember how he killed himself. I don't know why everybody thought I was such an expert, but everybody there started, and, and I, did, I only attended there occasionally. Uh, I didn't, and tell, why did he do this? You, you have an answer. Tell me why he did this. I was two months in the Lord, and yeah, I didn't know. I said, I don't know why he did this. You know, I don't have an answer for you. Well, I do now. He had a conscience that was racked with guilt because of sin that he never confessed or never felt was cleansed and forgiven by God that brought him to the point that he couldn't live with himself. And he took his own life. I don't know what that sin was. That's not the point. The point was that he never ever understood the truth and effectually activated it, as it were, in his life about the sacrifice that Jesus has made that totally purges our conscience and cleanses us from all our sin. That we can live with victory and a, and, and a secure conscience because of Jesus. And if you're racked with guilt, you don't understand Jesus. You don't understand what he's done for you. And you've never really accepted. I'm not saying you're not saved. Maybe you are saved, but you've never rested in actually what he is or who he is and what he's done for you. The infinitely efficacious sacrifice satisfied God in a way that the blood of bulls and goats never could. Through Christ's blood, you can have a clean conscience and, and, and if you have a clean conscience, you have no guilt. And you have a, Jesus said, I am come that you might have life and life abundantly. You only have that with a clean conscience. It's there for everybody through Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the word of God. And oh Lord, might we just internalize what is being addressed here. The victory through Jesus. Lord, our, our, if we're guilty of, of something, anything, Lord, if we're saved, we just need to confess it. Confess our, our lack of trust, our lack of rest, our lack of understanding how great you are, Lord. That our conscience can be clear. We can have victory. We can have life, and we can have life abundantly through the blood of Jesus who gives us a clear conscience. Forgiveness of sin. Bless our fellowship. Bless the food, Lord. And we'll thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness Podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org, email us at office at jewishawareness.org, or call us 
at 919-275-4477. Shalom.